World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again today with another episode of a World of Work podcast. We're going to be doing a research episode. We've not done one of these for a while, but this is where Jane and I jump into a specific subject that we think is really interesting and helpful for the world of work, digest it and share back with you uh, all the things that we think are key takeaways, which is super exciting. So Jane, what is it we're going to be speaking about today? Well, today we are talking all about Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety. Oh, that's a phrase I think a lot of people have heard, and it's something that, that we're both quite passionate about. What is it that has led us to do this now? What is it that, that you've been doing that, that's got you thinking so much about this subject recently? Oh, that's a question. So I've been kind of hung up on this topic for a while, and I know you and I have had lots and lots of conversations about it. We've introduced it to some of our clients. We've, we've talked about it. Um, and I guess at its very heart, it started... Um, probably when I very first joined my MSc in organizational psychology and I started looking at some of the research and I started looking at some of the tools that we were using anyway and how backed up they were with academic um, background and sort of came across sort of the back catalog of work that had led up to uh, what a lot of leadership and development people are talking about in terms of psychological safety. At the same time, I think it's been quite in the press quite a lot because um, there's been some quite high-profile organizations advocating for it. So uh, Edmondson's done some work with Google, um, there, and it was related, there was a lot of work done related to the Aristotle project. And also, I think it's, I think it, I think it's got a snappy title, and I, I like, I don't want to say that, but at the same time, I think it instantly, it, it's quite rare that you find a model that instantly reflects if you think about it for just a moment, what it's trying to say, and I think psychological safety does that too. I feel psychologically safe in my team. That kind of makes sense to me. So um, so that's the reason I'm like, you and I talk about it a lot, I think. And then I think very specifically lately, uh, I've been doing some training. I'm uh, getting some training from the Phyllis organization, which is Edmondson's uh, sort of responsible for delivering Edmondson's work. And I'm learning how to do psychological safety scans within teams. Um, and so I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And I kind of thought it'd be a good time to come and talk to you about it. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, like you said, it's something that we've spoken about for a long time. And I think our interest has been rejuvenated with you, I guess, jumping into it and learning a little bit more about it and learning about the scans and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so it's great to be doing. Um, before we get too much into it, though, I thought it would be worth sharing a couple of definitions. I think a lot of people kind of know what it is. And like you say, it's one of those models that's so well labeled it's got such a good name that it's quite intuitive to extract from that name something that we all individually connect with but it's worth sharing a couple of definitions i think one comes from khan and it predates um amy edmondson's work and it just says that psychological safety is the ability to show and employ oneself without fear of negative consequences or self-image status or career so that, that's a, a pretty early definition and then more recently um, Amy Edmondson starts to talk about a shared belief that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. 
so again that that notion of interpersonality and then you know sharing um what, who you are and then take those risks comes out a lot there and some people have kind of paraphrased that into a statement that you might hear quite a lot when people are talking about psychological safety and, and that phrase that you'll probably hear is it's a shared belief held by members of a team that others on the team will not embarrass reject or punish you for speaking up so again all of those definitions sort of speak to this ability to share in safety to contribute in safety um, and, and to, to you know bring yourself to that working environment in a good place without fear of any sort of reprisal or put down have you got anything that you'd like to build on those definitions, James? Is that, does, do you think I sum it up for you? I, I don't want to build on those definitions because I, ugh, I'm i going to sound, it's going to be really difficult to do this episode because I'm going to sound like a fangirl at various points and I apologize in advance. But I think the, 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 the definition that you read out second, Amy Edmondson's definition is a good one. Um, and actually, I, I understand that the idea of interpersonal risk-taking sounds a bit clunky at first and you're like oh but I would encourage people if they are thinking about this stuff to get comfortable and think about what that phrase means rather than come up with their own definitions because I think it's very accurate but I do think it's helpful to think about what interpersonal risk-taking means and I guess you know when I'm talking to people about it informally I often talk about you know am I scared to say something and I don't mean scared like I'm going to lose my job. I mean, am I nervous? Am I, am I feeling a bit hesitant? And that is worth unpacking when you're thinking about, are you truly psychologically safe? Something that I hear sometimes that I just wanted to check out there and see, see what you think about is sometimes I hear people thinking that a psychologically safe environment is one which isn't challenging or where maybe people aren't held to account so much or, or where you know difficult conversations maybe aren't held so much because you know to achieve ultimate safety, there's there's none of that sort of potential conflict in conversations what do you think about that how does that play in with your sense of what a psychological so i don't uh i absolutely come across that conversation and um i absolutely understand why people would think that but uh it's a long long way from from what i would see as psychological safety i would say in fact some of the most comfortable teams and let's use the word comfortable because i think it's helpful and some of the most comfortable teams that i've worked with are some of the least psychologically safe that I've experienced working alongside. Um, and I, I, I mean by that, that they don't feel there are members of the team, significant number of members of the team who haven't felt confident about challenging the status quo. So everyone's in a big fairy blanket and no one wants to point out that there might be some bumps coming up in the road. And I, at its simplest, if people are too comfortable and everyone is working to keep that comfort going, then by, by logic, they are going to not necessarily be comfortable by making everyone uncomfortable. And I know that sounds like a lot of comfort and discomfort and uncomfortable, but I do, I think that's important um, because I don't, I don't think we do our best work. And I know James, you and I have talked about this a lot. I don't think we do our best work when we're comfortable. I don't think we do our best work when we're scared to speak up, but I definitely don't think we do our best work where we're sitting back and being able to do it by numbers. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I, I mean, I, I'd echo that and, and say that I think really to be psychologically safe, we probably need to be able to step into some of those more challenging conversations, more challenging interactions within our teams to help each other get the most out of what we're doing to help achieve the best for our organizations and, and to step into those more difficult conversations, knowing that it's safe to do that, that some of that conflict is actually a safe thing for us to go into and, and to try and drive things forward and make things better. Yeah, and I think 
I don't know. I just, I, I think there's a whole balance that goes on into running really good teams. And um, I think there is an artistry and I know, I know management science is a science, but I think there is an artistry in balancing how comfortable versus uncomfortable your team and your team members are at any one time and, and how you think about that. Um, and I think understanding and being familiar with how they are experiencing psychological safety and if to what extent they feel safe is unbelievably powerful as a leader as long as you can be really clear of understanding what they might not be telling you yeah and there's always that right there's uh, always the, the undercurrent. you can go around in circles right how do you really know if they're every psychological safe because if they don't speak up and they don't feel safe to tell you they don't feel safe then you'll never get anywhere but i would like to think that well well-meaning um leaders and that's why you and I talk about self-awareness so much right because you need mm. that to be able to 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 ask critical questions about is this really the you know people being sharing candidly with me yeah well let's let's move on I mean we've talked a little bit about definitions and explored those a little bit about what psychological safety is about maybe what it isn't about the fact that that it's it's not just about having this this you know uh, fluffy blanket around us it's, it's about a lot more than that and let's jump into the research side of it. So if I were to ask you what the building blocks of psychological safety were, I mean, it's, it's founded on, I think, four quadrants um, fundamentally. What would, what would you say those are? What are the, I guess... Okay, so uh, the way to think about psychological safety is to think about are people in your team or in the team that you're considering experiencing an environment where they feel safe to learn, to challenge, to contribute, and do they feel included? So that's learning safety, challenging safety, collaboration safety, and inclusion, right? And those are the kind of four areas uh, that Edmondson's work uh, and works work of those working in the field of psychological safety look at. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I guess if we think about things like learning, you know, so much of learning is about sometimes trying new things, taking a bit of risk, and, and putting ourselves in the situation where we could be held up for ridicule or held up for not doing something perfectly right the first time. And, and likewise with challenging, we're putting ourselves out there and, and to some extent taking a risk with another person in our team. So that, that point about interpersonal risk-taking really blends through all four of these quadrants yeah I think so and I think I think you have to in some senses it, it helps to think about like the scenarios and why people why this might be an issue or why this might not be obvious because obviously when you read those out it's like oh well obviously those are good things but if we if we think about an individual within a group of people and it's important to remember psychological safety is a team level um sort of concept so we're thinking at team level um if you're an individual within a team and you don't feel it's safe to acknowledge what you don't know and therefore to learn new things, then you're in an environment where ultimately one or more people is not getting the best out of the information resources opportunities around them, right? So that's, that's not a good thing. I think if you've got someone who isn't feeling it's confident and safe to be able to collaborate with others. So particularly if you get, you know, some, one of the common things I see is where people have joined the team later or they're not a specialist within the team or they don't have as much experience or whatever it is, some of those things, you're not getting 
the, the benefits of having someone new or different in your team. I think, um, the, I mean, you know, James, how I feel about the challenging safety element of it because it terrifies me. It literally terrifies me what teams would be, are, are like when people don't feel safe to challenge. Um, at its at its worst, in some of the jobs that involve safety and things like that, um, they've been hacking at this issue of you know feeling safe to challenge for a long time. You know, and Edmonton did huge amounts of work in healthcare, which is absolutely you know a perfect example of where you have to feel safe to challenge and speak up, no matter what your position in the team. Um, and then. Finally, that idea of inclusion and that feeling of if you feel separate for the team, are you really going to put your effort and your time and are you going to want and be motivated to work towards solutions and trying things that are going to benefit everyone? Or are you going to just protect yourself and stay on the outskirts? And I think, I, I guess each of them, I have seen each of them and a combination of each of them in pretty much every team I've ever worked with. And those, you know, great teams, teams that, you know, generally are really, really good, but there is, there is pretty much always an improvement, room for improvement in one of those areas is my experience. Yeah, that's really helpful. There's an awful lot in there that we could sort of delve into and unpack a little bit. I guess if I asked it at a top level, I guess sort of two questions. One, what types of teams do you think benefit from becoming more psychologically safe. And then two, you, you talked about some of the, the benefits that, that exist in there about that ability to challenge and particularly some of the risk behaviors around that space in, in risky uh, organizations or risky professions like the medical profession and stuff. But more broadly, what are the benefits of psychological safety? What, what, how would you describe this? Yeah, so I guess, I guess the biggest things, and I think it's important to remember that we're talking about... Um, predominantly the work well we're talking about teams that have some level of uh collaboration within their teams right so so there are certain types of teams that you're more likely to see in but um in terms of impact the most the most obvious and most get talked about is increase in information sharing so teams being better and more efficient at sharing information so that they can improve so that they they understand what's going on um, if you think about how many experiences we all have when working in teams and we don't feel we have all the information that everyone else in the team has around their experiences. So information sharing, satisfaction. So generally, the uh, the research shows that people experience better job satisfaction, which obviously um, is usually linked to turn, really reduced turnover intention. Um, and then uh, increase in learning behaviors. So you'll see people um, trying to learn more. And then to a lesser extent, you'll also see improved performance and engagement. And I, I mean, those are still fairly, you know, they're significant and of relevance. But I guess, you know, the big things, uh, the big shifts you see around information sharing, satisfaction and learning behaviors. Yeah. And they're all, you know, clearly things that, that people want to achieve in teams, particularly in any type of team that's looking to change or improve or deliver a fulfilling experience for their individuals right and that's and that's the thing right so absolutely if someone said to me can a team be functioning well without psychological safety my personal opinion would be yes it could be in the short term right you could absolutely turn up be really efficient do your job but is that team going to be thinking about the future moving forward and making improvements and identifying where they could make improvements and preventing you know errors and things like that probably not um, so it's, you know, you might be able to do it for a little while, but pretty much it's always going to come and bite you, I think. Yeah. And, and fundamentally, you know, so many people 
derive value from the process of making things better, of learning, of challenging and doing all of that. So that whole fulfillment in work, that satisfaction is to some extent for many people um, influenced by their ability to, to learn and to change. Um, if I was going to go on and, and say, okay, well, this sounds great, or are there sort of preconditions? I mean, are, are there things that we need to get right in our teams or, or that are um, important for having in place if we're going to really try and move to this place where we can be psychologically safe and have this learning safety and um, you know collaboration and challenge and inclusion and all those types of things? Um, well, some of the research shows shows various things. Um, and when I say some of the research, there's, there's a whole body of research and, and there's a great book that's... Um, Pattinson's written, uh, as well as uh, Google's Aristotle project, a lot of the data from that, which was like 180 work teams. Um, but there's some, there's some basics, principles, right? And if you listen to a lot of our stuff, you might recognize that we bang on about some of these things, and this is why. So the first is role clarity, right? So teams that are really clear on whose job it is to do what. Um, the second is peer support. So a team that's already predisposed to support each other. And then to a lesser extent, but still, it's it's teams that are highly interdependent, obviously, because it'll have a bigger impact, right? So where teams are interdependent and then there's psychological safety, sharing, sharing information is going to become more and more important. Um, learning orientation. So it's built on teams that have learning orientation and it, it will ramp up your learning behavior. So what does that mean? Well, it means that where you've got people in your team who want to learn and they experience psychological safety, they will adopt learning behaviors. And then uh, the other thing that comes up quite a lot is uh, positive leader relations. So basically a predisposition to at least like your leader um, or to feel positively. You don't even have to like them. You just have to feel positively about them. And, and I guess the way to think about that is the opposition of that, right? So if you feel negatively about your leader, um, then it's going to be harder. You're not, you're going to struggle to breed the grounds that you need for psychological safety, but also it might lessen the impact. Yeah, that's helpful. I think um, I think that point about possibly the relations, it, it's interesting. It's something that we speak about sometimes about leaders who take a phrase like more human approach to leadership and things like that, which tends to equate with a little bit more of a personableness that, that can work for some teams. I think that comes comes through in some of this. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by interdependence within a team? I don't know um, if that's something you could build on a little bit. What types yeah, of teams yeah. are independence? What's Absolutely. Um, so when we talk about interdependence, we're basically talking about how much, well, there's, there's two things really, how much we need to interact with other people to be able to do our job, right? So if I could draw a pencil line around all my tasks and I didn't need to talk to anyone or do anything to do with them, then I'd have a low level of interdependence. And the easiest way I can, like the easiest example I think of when I think of interdependence is about people writing books, right? So if I'm writing my book and I haven't got anyone else helping me, then there's low interdependence, but I might have an editor involved at the end stages. If you and I and two of our colleagues decided to write a book and we decided to all write separate chapters, we'd probably need to talk a little bit to make sure we didn't overlap. And we'd probably need to rely on each other to draw information and share to understand how we structure it and agree how each chapter is, is linked and all of that. If uh, we were all going to write a textbook, we would probably have a really high level of independency because we're all going to need to come together and build the structure of it and, and at every level. Um, and so really, when we talk about independence, it's like 
on a, on a simplistic basis, it's the level which we interact with other people in order to get our job done um, within our team. And so, um, unsurprisingly, we also see like highly interdependent teams that aren't functioning brilliantly tend to get really high levels of frustration. You can put up with a, a challenging team environment. Challenge is a bad word, sorry. But you can put up with a negative or not positive team environment if your work is relatively non-interdependent because you're, you're more likely to be able to because it's going to be less irritating, right? Um, but similarly, psychological safety should have, logically speaking, a bigger impact on interdependent teams because the, the better you get at challenging, sharing, learning, the more the whole team benefits because you've got that interaction constantly. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think, I think for me, as, as I listen to you explain it, it goes a little bit back to that interpersonal risk-taking where there is interdependence, there is, by definition, almost certainly more interpersonal interaction and engagement because we've got these relationships and these dependencies on with each other, uh, on each other. So the more we're able to, to um, you know, undertake uh, risk-taking activities in those relationships from a position of safety, the more effective we'll be, and, and it, it's that sort of virtuous cycle in there. So, you know, we, we talk about things like role clarity. We talked about peer support in there, uh, interdependence, that learning orientation, that, that positive set of leader relations as some of the foundations of the things that, that um, psychological safety is really built on. And, and we talk about those types of things quite a lot in some of our other um, podcasts and, and with our guests and in some of the work that we do. If I were to step back and ask you, well, that's all great. We, we, we know what it's built on. We know what some of the impacts are. We know what some of the quadrants are. How do we actually work out if a team is psychologically safe? What does one do to assess or understand whether a team is safe? Well, so uh, probably the easiest thing to do is explain a little bit about what Edmondson herself and the organization that, that she's part of do. Uh, and that's where I'm taking my training from. So I can, I can explain it a little bit. And so... Um, the work basically uh, focuses on teams uh, filling out a survey and uh, rating their responses to seven questions, which which sounds re really small, right? Um, because seven questions is not what we're used to doing in terms of surveys and stuff like that. And I think it's really important to understand that their approach is not about having a perfect psychometric diagnostic. It's about a learning experience. So you do the questions. Um, you can do them for free, by the way, on their website. So um, if you're interested in this stuff, then I would really encourage you to go and have a look at their website. Um, it's called uh, The Phyllis Organization. I'll just check the website for you. There's a book as well. Um, that's written around it but you can do that as, as far as I know certainly up until this week when we we're publishing you could do those for free and have a go and it's fearlessorganization.com um, and you answer seven, seven questions but really what they say is you know and then it's about sitting down with your team and, and you know you can get trained facilitators to do this uh, who can run the program for you uh, but it's about sitting down with your team and starting to unpack as a team why those answers look like they do and you know it, this is not about going into teams that are not psychologically safe and trying to fix them. This is about going into teams that are doing okay, but are looking to do improvements, or at least from my perspective it is, because you need that basic assurance that they are likely to share candidly. It's done anonymously, but even so. Um, and you ask, you know, 
you, you answer questions and you reflect on them and then you have a conversation about what could be done to, to address some of the challenges that are being experienced. And so they have questions like, uh, they ask you to think about things like, if you make a mistake on this team, it's often held against you or it is safe to take risks on my team or uh, working with members of my team, my unique skills and talents are valued and utilized, things like that. And so there are seven of these questions. And uh, yeah, that's their kind of approach to thinking about it. But as I say, you can do it free. If you're a leader or a manager, you want to look at it, check out the website, do your own scan for free, buy the book and you can do it yourself and have a conversation about it. I think for a lot of this stuff, um, I would say what, I, what you and I say a lot, James, which is opening a conversation about the concept for, would be massive for a lot of people. Even as a leader saying, I'm interested in this in my team and I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on it is, is in a team that's, that's relatively okay, but maybe looking for ways to improve. I think it's, you know, it's a monumental. At the very least, buy them all the book for Christmas or something. And I, I sound like I'm promoting the book and I'm really not. Like I am, but it's not because it's not we're getting anything out of it. I just think it's a useful concept. Yeah, me too. And, and your, your point about just introducing the concept into your team being a powerful thing, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, with so many of these things, just opening that conversation. And in so many of the things we speak about, just asking people what they think about things that are important, that define the way that you work together with others is, is hugely powerful. And a lot of those questions are, 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 um, are excellent. And I, I love what you said there about going on and not just doing that survey, but really getting then into a conversation with people and saying, okay, well, so what about it, you know? Um, and, and trying to delve into and explore some of the whys behind it and then some of the how does it appear and how does it affect us and what might we do about it? That can lead to some really, really great conversations. Um, question for you. It strikes me with all those questions that you would have a better conversation about all those questions if you were a really psychologically safe team. Discuss. Well, so this this was kind of the point I was like hovering around. So I I really like this concept. I think I mean, I do, right? I'm doing the training. That's how, that's how much I like it. I, can, I literally can think of a, a sort of 20 teams off the top of my head that I know that would benefit. But, and here's a big but, uh, anonymized surveys in small team scenarios aren't really anonymous, right? Particularly if there's outliers, right? So if there's seven of you and one of you's got different opinions, chances are someone's going to be able to figure it out if it's skewed. Um, and even if it's completely anonymous, the discomfort of saying your great team isn't that great might be enough for someone not to admit it. And sometimes we don't even admit it to ourselves. And sometimes we think things are comfortable and great and they're not. So I think we need to be really conscious of that. And that's why, I guess that's why I said introducing the concept is really helpful. Because for me, I think, and you know, I, I, I guess I, I'd urge listeners to go back to some of our critical episodes. So uh, Critical Perspectives with Mark Hughes and maybe the Rob Breener episode, um, and help me, there was another one that I was thinking Tom, about. Tom Calvert. On, Tom uh, Calvert's Critical yeah. Perspectives on Diversity. And there's a few others, right? And I would urge you to go back and listen to those as well, because I think it is a use. is absolutely, I think, a useful concept. But to be a really switched-on leader, the scan is going to help you. The questions are going to help you. But it's about challenging yourself to be brutally honest. So the example I would give is I work with a number of small organization CEOs and they are good people. James, I want to be really clear about this. They are good leaders and good people. And they all would tell me that they have an open door policy and their team can come to them. 
And pretty much all of them have come up through the ranks, right? And that was probably true before they were CEO. Quite possibly true. But those lovely teams around them don't always come and take their problems to them. They filter, right? And they filter sometimes not because the leader is difficult or anything like that. Maybe they want to protect the leader from the trauma. Maybe they don't want to admit there's a problem. And so we have to be, when we're managing and leading people and we want them to feel psychologically safe, we have to be hard on ourselves. And I don't mean in an aggressive sort of downtrodden way, but we do have to say to ourselves, come on now. They've all said they would challenge me. But when we're standing in a room in front of my board chairman and I say something wrong, are they really going to look me in the eye and correct me? Probably not, or probably, or maybe some and maybe not others. And that's, I mean, when the, when the chips are down, those are the things that I'm imagining. I'm imagining a scenario where a leader says something wrong and is it critical? No, but absolutely it needs to be corrected because it's in a public forum. And, and does your team know, do your team truly believe that you will want them to correct you? Yeah. And, and you know, so much of that goes back to another theme that we talk about so much in our work, which is about the uh, essential connection between personal development and leadership and management development. Because to, to really kind of be that leader that creates that psychologically safe environment, you don't just have to say that you want people to challenge you. You need to get to that situation where, where you genuinely do want those types of things to take place. And, and you derive benefit from them and you know your organization does as well so some of this work that's involved in creating a psychologically safe team starts with work for each of us as individuals and as leaders in, in shaping what we want who we are how we behave in such a way that we perhaps uh, embody or role model or demonstrate the things and the behaviors that are important that really reciprocate in the right way when people do some of these behaviors. So, so let's go on and, and talk a little bit more about some of the things that we can do, right? So if if I remember correctly, in a lot of her work, uh, Amy Edmondson talks about different things that we can do or different stages um, that we go through when we are trying to create psychologically safe teams. What are the, what are the headline stages that she talks oh, about? Oh dear, this is where we all start to sound like fangirls and fanboys. So, um, one of the reasons I really like this piece of work and this function, right, is that the, the team that, that are working on it have really worked hard at making it practically implementable, right? And so therefore, it kind of stands a little bit differently to a lot of the work we see coming out of organizational science and, and um, workplace psychology and stuff like that. Um, and so effectively, there are three stages, right? So to create psychological safety or to, to support the development of psychological safety, leaders should set the stage. Um, and that's framing the work and emphasizing purpose. And that is the reason we do that is it creates a, a shared expectation and meaning of the work amongst the team, right? So here is what I expect from you and here's what you can expect from me. And it's reciprocal, right? So leaders sometimes forget, particularly when they've been in charge for a little while, they sometimes forget they need to completely consistently emphasize that they are going to meet these conditions as well. It's not just about the other members of the team. The second stage is inviting participation. Um, and so in that sense, we're talking about something called demonstrating situational humility, i.e. I don't know everything. Practicing, uh, good practice inquiry, so find asking questions and things like that. And setting up the structures and processes, which is without a shadow of a doubt, the one that... Um, 
I see least creativity in in my my industry and my line of work. Um, so we invite participation, and that really that's giving people the confidence that their voice is welcome, right? So, so it's a really great thing to think about, right? Does every single member of my team approach a situation thinking my voice is welcome in this conversation? Because most of the team meetings I go to are not balanced voice, right? Although I would say there's something interesting going on about online meetings because I do think it's changed it a little bit. And then the third stage is responding productively. And there's, oh man, there's so much self-regulation work that could go on for leaders in this bit. So responding productively is, have I expressed, you know, is there an ex express expression of appreciation for the input, whether I'd agree with it or not? Have I destigmatized failure? And have I sanctioned clear violations? And responding productively is about creating orientation towards continuous learning, right? And I, I don't know how I feel about that explanation, but I want to be really clear. So many of the models that you and I have explored, James, only look at either the positives or the negative behavior. How do you encourage positive behavior or how do you, you know, decrease negative behavior? And the inclusion of sanctioning clear violations in this, I think, is really, really important. Because what it's saying is my job as a leader is to let the team know through my actions that when someone does something that is not a part of what we have agreed in setting the stage, then I will take action. Because we know from certainly some of the organizations we've worked with, James, that, that things creep in, right? People let things go. They don't, they don't acknowledge it's, it's breaking the rules or breaking the agreement the team have. And then suddenly everyone's doing it or... Worse, a couple of people are doing it and everyone else is seriously hacked off. So I, I guess that's just another reason why I quite like this approach. Yeah, brilliant. I'm just going to just play them back to you again, just to make sure I, I kind of understand it. So we've got these three big stages, right, that, that Amy and others talk about. So stage one, we kind of explain the ground rules and, and demonstrate why what we're doing is really important so that it's almost worth taking interpersonal risks in relation to. So we're like, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing what we're doing, what we're trying to achieve. This is a really worthy thing. So by all means, we should take some risks to make sure we do a good job. That feels to me like sort of setting the stage. Then once we've sort of set the stage and explained some of the ways we expect behavior to be, then we can go on and, and do that actual inviting participation and say, okay, well, we've set the stage. We've talked about why it matters. Now you guys do it. Come in and do it. Challenge, say, contribute, speak up, invent, create, try new things. Do all of that. And as a leader, I opened the door to that at each one of our interactions or whenever it seems appropriate. And then, then you know, having invited you to step into this room and, and do these things, when you do it, I'm like, yes, you know, that is the right thing to have done. Let me demonstrate and respond accordingly and, and you know, reinforce that positive action on your part by the way that I respond to it in a way that, that's helpful and supportive of you and, and, and supports you in doing more of that, provided that you're behaving in the ways that are helpful and then sanctioning you if you don't. Does that sort of encapsulate what, yep. what we're going to yeah absolutely yeah brilliant okay so i think that's really interesting I, i've got a, a little bit of a drilling question to this um and i'm not sure if it's something that you've looked at we, we talk a little bit here about um you know this invitation of participation and then responding productively something that that i think some people experience in teams is maybe they feel like they contribute you know they're invited to contribute and they say something or or they make an offering or they you know, constructively challenge and all these things. Now, we can't all have our contributions acted upon, right? We can't all be speaking up with different opinions, sharing different ideas, and then all 
ultimately get to be that winning voice in that conversation. How do we manage this with people in our team so that we can appreciate their contribution and what they're doing without necessarily acting on it? And, and is there some sort of burnout of contribution if that happens all the time? How do we how do we separate the acting on a contribution from recognizing the contribution as a good thing in and of itself? That's a really interesting question. Um, I've just sprung I'm, I'm going to deviate. Sorry. I said I've just totally sprung this on you as well, so apologies. No, for that's that, fine because I think it's a good. Qu- I like it. Oh, I like a good springing, James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm I'm going to deviate from the research at this stage and just give you my opinion because I don't Brilliant. know what the research yeah, is about it. it. Um, but I do see this a lot, and I think there's there's probably two things to 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 pick up on here. One is um, I, in my opinion, psychological safety is not the same as being motivated to do it. Right. So this is about being safe to do these things and feeling like they're safe to do them. I do think you can have an environment where people feel totally safe, but don't speak up because nothing ever happens. I'm not sure that would fall under the conditions of this, nor would it be identified by psychological safety. I think that's an inaction of leadership. Um, If they haven't demonstrated how those ideas have been considered. So, and I think the separate thing is uh, how do you deal with it when one person's right more often, right? So one one of the scenarios that I've seen consistently is someone who's a much higher performer in terms of problem solving and particularly problem identification than anyone else. And they tend to be more right in those sorts of conversations. <laughs> and they tend to be speaking up a lot more because they spot loads more because that is their natural, you know, one of their natural talents or maybe it's not natural, maybe it's been developed. Um, and therefore that can create friction, right? And it can it, it can either make people feel less confident about speaking up rather than less safe. Or it might even in extreme circumstances make them feel less safe from speaking up because they feel like, they may perceive that there will be a judgment on them even if there isn't. So those are two slightly separate things, I think. Um, what I would say to both of them is I, I don't want to over-drill decision-making process and in, in innovation in process, but at the same time, it would be really remiss of me not to talk about it because you and I have talked about this a lot. When your team have transparency about how decisions are made, solutions are chosen, Uh, about how you're collecting information, about how you're inviting participation. So not just experiencing invitation, participation invitation, but actually seeing how everyone's been engaged and then how you've processed that information and how you've got to where you are, you end up in a different place, right? You end up in a a much healthier place. And, And it gives people, I think, a lot more security, right? So I don't know that it increases psychological safety because I don't I don't think that makes logical sense but I do believe it increases motivation if psychological safety is there does that make does that make sense it absolutely does make sense and, and I think that's really helpful and and that point about the separation of action away from um, just appearing as a black box to really understanding that process can give people um, some comfort over this and I, that's a really powerful thing yeah. And I think, I think, you know, I have had scenarios where people have presented me solutions and we've been working towards a place where everyone feels really confident and they've been, they've just not been the right solutions in any way, shape or form, or even worse, they're pointing out problems that I don't even agree are problems. Now I'd like to say, I don't disagree with people always, but occasionally I disagree with all the team. Right. And as a leader, that's my duty, my obligation. And there's two things that I need to do in order to have that permission from them to disagree and effectively override the rest of the team. Right. One is I need to be able to articulate my job as a leader or manager really well. And James, you and I talk about this all the time. Do my team understand what my job is and how my job is ultimately to own the decisions made in that team? 
And two, do we have an agreement? And I guess this this is in setting the scene a little bit, but as a whole team working practice, do my team and I all agree and accept the way decisions are made in our in our team? And do they have transparency on how that happens? And I feel like when you, again, going back to your question at the beginning, is everyone comfortable? No one's going to be happy about that. No one in my experience is happy when a leader overrules their entire team. But it shouldn't happen very often because if your team's good, it'll be a, a rare thing. And they don't need to be happy about it. They need to accept it and be comfortable about it. You know, I, I, I go back to things like, I always think about governing by consent and regulation by consent and policing by consent. And in some senses, I feel like that about leadership, right? Your team have to consent to you being their leader for it to be effective. And one of the ways that you can do that is by being transparent with them then I think you're in a place where even if you've got psychological safety and you've got consent, then you're in a really healthy place, probably. Yeah, that's, um, that's helpful. I've got two little bits popped into my mind while, while you were chatting that I was just going to reflect back on briefly. One is I'd go a little bit further uh, and build on one of the things that you said. And I'd say, you know, if you're a leader and you're always the one with the right answers, I think you've probably surrounded yourself with the wrong people. Maybe that's a bit harsh, but I don't think the leader should always be the one that comes up with the right answers. You won't achieve the best for yourself and, and your team and your organization if you always know the right right solution. I, I, I'd sort of challenge that in terms of... Can I go one further? Yeah, okay, go for it. Well, if you subscribe to the world that view that you and I have, and our worldview doesn't perfectly overlap, but it does in some places, there isn't a right answer, right? So the fact that you as a leader think there's a right answer, there's a best fit answer for now. And quite often leaders might choose that over their team because they know something the team doesn't, right? Yeah, private so it's quite Yeah, so it's quite common that leaders might know something about where a strategy is going, where a team might not at, be at the stage where it's, they're allowed to share that yet for whatever reason. Um, but, but then you start getting into the trust piece, right? Which we know sits really closely with psychological safety. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out. I don't... If you yeah. think there's a right answer to everything, you're probably in the wrong job and you shouldn't be doing leadership because I just don't think there is. And I yeah, think the certainty more, is a funny thing, right? And the joy of your team creating choice for you in your solutions, even if you end up going with the one you had originally, occasionally, it's still a beautiful thing when the people around you can give you really good alternative options. Yeah, absolutely. The, the next little point I was going to bring in is something that I'm quite passionate about as well when it comes to sort of responding productively, even if you don't go with the suggestions that people make. I think it's possible to adopt a bit of a coaching approach in this situation and, and not only sort of rely on the process of decision making or whatever it happens to be, rely on those processes to help people understand the rationale behind things. But if we adopt a little bit more of this coaching process where we listen, we inquire, we help people grow and develop, we get out of their way where possible. I think all of those things, um, those sort of coaching behaviors can contribute well to responding productively and demonstrating that we value the risk-taking of people around us and, and going back on that in such a way that it doesn't inhibit them or damage them or uh, leave them to do less of it in the future. We can, we can be rewarding and help them turn that contribution of something in a risk-taking environment into a positive outcome for them through their learning and the attention that we give them, even if we don't end up implementing what they suggest and things like that. Um, yeah, that I think that's I think those are wise words. 
Wise. I've not been called wise for a while, Jen. Thank oh, you. I call you wise all the time, James. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, so uh, let's start to, to move on a little bit. So, so that's really, I guess, the, the core bit of our research roundup. So we've talked to you a little bit about what XFD is. We've done some definitions. We've talked about the quadrants, the benefits of it. We've talked about some preconditions, a little bit about how we measure it. And then we've talked about these three core things that leaders should try and do in setting the stage for it and inviting participation from people in the team and then responding productively. What we're going to go on and, and do now is just do a little bit of uh, a look with our list of a week at some questions that leaders can ask themselves, some things that leaders can reflect on to get a bit of a sense of how they've done at doing this. So I'm just going to going to share a couple of questions and, and see what we've got here. So some questions you can ask yourself are as follows. If we think about that setting the stage, um, stage of creating psychological safety. Uh, if we talk about framing the work well, you might ask yourself, have I spoken of failures in the right way, given the nature of the work that we do, right? So have I demonstrated that failures are, you know, to be celebrated and rewarded because we work in a type of industry where that's okay? Or have I talked about failures in an appropriate way if we are really a high risk organization? So that's a question you can ask. If we talk about the emphasis on purpose, you know, emphasizing purpose, setting a stage, you can ask yourself, have I articulated clearly why our work matters, why it makes a difference for whom? And again, the purpose of that question is to say, this stuff matters, right? So it's worth taking an interpersonal risk because we, we benefit from getting the outcome right for this sense of purpose. So let's, let's jump on. If we look at then that invitation, uh, invite to participation stage, if we think about the situational humility piece, that, that demonstrating that we're not right all the time and that it's okay for others to contribute because we know we are fallible to some extent. We can ask ourselves as leaders, have I made sure that people know that I don't think I have all the answers? Assuming you don't, and if you think you do, you're gonna probably change role. Um, next question we could ask ourselves is, have I emphasized that we can always learn more? All of us can always learn more, and that we need to be and remain humble and curious to some extent, because that's where our best learning takes place. If we think about proactive inquiry as a leader, you can ask yourself, how often do I ask good questions rather than rhetorical ones. You know, how much of the time are we asking questions because we want to know the answers, not because we're leading somewhere or because we're trying to create a way to shoehorn in our own answer and solution to something. If we think about systems and structures, we can ask, have I created structures to systematically elicit ideas and concerns? Have I, have I brought in meeting processes? Have I brought in ways of working? Have I brought in structures around how we do things that make it easy for people to contribute their ideas to raise concerns? Have I broken down those um, bureaucratic barriers and ways of working barriers that prevent that. Then in that, that this last um, of this triptych here, when we're talking about responding productively, um, if we're talking about expressing appreciation, though, you can ask yourself, have I listened thoughtfully, signaling that what I am hearing matters? So have I fed back to people and then demonstrated through my attention and my response that I, I care and value and that what people are saying really matters? Have I done that? If I have, then I'm contributing to the safe environment that we, we aspire to. If I'm not, maybe I could do better. Last couple ones for you. Um, again, still in this, this section here, if we're looking at my contribution to destigmatizing failure as a leader, I can ask myself, when someone comes to me with bad news, how do I make sure it's a positive experience for them? And again, that can be going back to some of that coaching and it can be just reflecting on, on how we work. And then lastly, this is a really hard one, this piece around sanctioning clear violations when it comes to responding productively. So a couple of questions you can ask yourself here. One, have I clarified boundaries? 
Boundaries are always a challenge, right? Have I clarified boundaries? Do people know what constitutes a blameworthy act in our organization? Or is it all just kind of blurred and people don't really know? Have you created that clarity? You know, ask yourself that question and, and reflect on it seriously, because we don't always do that. And then last question from this list of the week is, do I respond to clear violations in an appropriately tough manner so as to influence future behavior? Or do I just put my head in the sand and pretend it didn't happen? Because that's a bit easier at the moment, right? So we can ask ourselves these questions. So that was our list of the week. It, um, it wasn't numbered. Hopefully you managed to keep, keep sight of it. But they're all really good questions to, to bear in mind and reflect on as a leader when you're thinking about psychological safety in your team and your contribution to it through the things that always contribute to sort of ways of working and, and culture shaping like our, our, you know, our leadership attention and our behaviors and the things that we role model and so on. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, as we start to wrap up, we always like to share a couple of stories um, from the real world, you know, either from organizations we've worked with or, or teams that we've been in. So Jane, have you got any tales from, from your world, tales from the keyboard that you want to share about safety and um, or, or lack of? I, I do. I guess, is it a tale from, it's an experience that I would, I would, I would like to share my learning from. Um, when I was in my first three or four years of my career, I had no fear. Because I wasn't worried about, well, I, I, I don't know why, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna hypothesize. Because I wasn't worried about mortgages and my pension and my network. Not because I, I worry about them consciously now, but because they just didn't even occur to me and because I was a little bit self-righteous. And I do think there is something about, I don't think it's about age, but I do think it's about when you're early in a career. And I think this is probably still true to some extent of people who transition when they come into early. There is a, there is a level of, and I'm gonna call it naivety and I, I'm gonna use it about myself, but there is a, a level of, of morality and naivety that my experience is, and I think I, I, talk, I think I speak up pretty well, right? But I would say there are, there are times when I've chosen not to, particularly when it's not affected someone else, when it's just been like affected me or I've picked my, I, people call it picking your battles, people call it being tactical, all of those things, but quite often it's been it, under those guise of those things. Now, when I was, when I was in my first three or four, I couldn't shut up with speaking up when things were wrong. And it makes me, when I manage people and lead people, look for people like that or people who are at that stage in their life because they are more, and, and to encourage it. Because if you encourage that person, then others see that you encourage that person. And if you shut that person down, anyone who has previously not had a preference for doing it certainly isn't going to do it. Because if, if Jane the Loudmouth gets shut down, then, then how am I, who don't have the confidence to do that and do have things to worry about, going to get shut down? And also, I, 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 and I guess, so for mine, it was calling out something that I was unhappy about um, in front of my team. And I, I would, wouldn't have chosen to do it that way, but it was, a, it was a situation where we had a limited amount of time. Someone else had made a mistake in another team, and it was about to mess around with a, a, a number of my team who were having a really tough time and going through a major change project. project. Um, that was affecting their jobs. And, uh, you know, I, I've said this before, I have never regretted that day. In fact, it's one of the few moments of my life that I am truly hand on heart confident I did the right thing and I did it the right way. 
and there's not many of them. So I guess my lesson or learning from the keyboard is um, whatever you're worried about, yes, those are absolutely sensible things to be worried about. But the, the, the power of feeling proud of, of doing something and challenging and then seeing it being taken on and changed, and it doesn't always happen like that, but, but if you, you know, is a really pretty amazing thing. And it's, it's shaped me. So I guess that's my, my lesson is that, you know, if you do feel like that, do it. And if you're a leader and you've got people who do seem to speak up, don't shut them down. Maybe, maybe suggest they don't do it every single meeting <laughs> and find ways to do it that's, that's productive for everybody else. But yeah, encourage yeah. it. Yeah, that's a, that's a powerful story. I'm going to share maybe a story from the other side. And it's, you know, back from the time that I used to work with a range of different teams, um, looking at things like performance and engagement. And, and I'm not going to go into details uh, in, in any way, but, but I've worked with a team that's got itself into a situation through leadership behaviors where the team was increasingly unpsychologically safe and sort of moving in that direction. And what was fascinating for me to watch with this team was the sort of acceleration or spiral that happened as this happened. So, you know, there's a change of leadership and things change a little bit. They became a little bit more regimented. There was very much more of a right way to do it. It should be my way. I have the answers. This is a structure. It became much more in that space and then sort of reduced bits of the autonomy and, and ability to speak up and contribute voice and all those types of things. And, and watching the impact of that was interesting because as people in the team started to feel that change in what was acceptable in those behaviors, they, they withdrew. So they tried less and less to challenge. They became less and less creative. They became less and less innovative. And, and here's the rub, right? So as, as they felt less able to do these things and did less of it, the leaders involved felt that they needed to become even more sort of directive and imposing in, in this space. And again, that, that sort of circled back to individuals until we got to the stage where it was almost a, almost a work to rule type of thing, right? You know, I will only really do explicitly what you've told me and no more and no less because I'm unable to take any of these risks. And when you get into this, this sort of cycle downwards, it, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy in which nobody ends up being fulfilled in their roles. And it is really quite a, a hard place to be in. So trying to break down from there and change and claw your way back up once you're on that downward spiral is really, really hard. And it takes personal change and personal reflection as a leader and an ability to, to open up and to face into some of these challenges. So I guess I just wanted to reflect there on the fact that this is a, a sort of a, a dynamic situation that can act upon itself. Um, so that's it for me. I guess that's kind of my reflection. Um, you know, it's possible to, to get out of those places, but, but it can be hard. So, you know, leaders really do have a role to play in staying aware of all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, I think that's probably it for today, Jane. Is there anything else you wanted to share and jump in on? Well, I'm gonna, I, I'll do my, my final thought and maybe you'll yeah. do your final thought and we can wrap up. And I guess uh, my final thought would be my favorite phrase in all of this, as you know, and you have heard many a time, James, is situational humility. Lovely. Right? It's a catchy little number in it. And I love it because I think, um, I think when I've seen it done well, it's epic. So when leaders are able in every situation to demonstrate they don't know everything in a, in a quick sentence or a, 
or a self-deprecating remark, not not like really beat themselves up, but just a little self-deprecating remark or a little acknowledgement of who the expert in the room is that's not them or in something. The room just, you get it instantly. Sorry, I'm snapping my fingers because it's like, it's just a thing. I've I've seen whole rooms transformed by because the most senior person in the room has walked in and just thrown off that shroud of expertise instantly. And um, so, yeah, situational humility. That's my that's my final thought. Brilliant. And and that links so well back to one of the points we talked about earlier, which was around certainty. Right? Certainty is such a funny thing. It's great to be confident, but certainty can be can be a, a really really difficult difficult um, thing to have as a leader in some ways. Uh, in some instances as well. So lovely. Um, the bit that I was going to jump in on is something that I'm really passionate about, which links to some of the coaching stuff that we've spoken about, which is this ability to proactively inquire. Uh, you know, I'm such a believer in the power of conversation. And if we can go into conversations with people as a leader, ask some questions and just listen. You know, we can learn so much through opening that door into a conversation by giving people space and by just listening. You know, you ask a question, you never know what's going to come out. And if we approach those moments of conversation with that real desire to, to hear what people say, as opposed to just wait to speak ourselves, then we can get so much out of those moments. And you know what? It doesn't even really need to be about work, right? We can ask them about themselves. We can ask them about what they think about things. And we can ask them about work. But in each one of those interactions where we really going in to conversations with people with an intention of, of listening and valuing what they contribute, we can draw out some, some really, really brilliant things. So ask more questions, be more curious. I think that's my um, my final thought for today. I knew, I knew there was something good about being nosy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> ask those questions. Um, great. Okay. Well, that is it for today, I think. Um, we've really enjoyed doing that. I certainly have. It's, it's been a while since we've had one of these conversations. Um, just before we go, uh, shout out. You can learn more about us at our website, www.worldofwork.io. We've got a load of great stuff up there on various things that we're delivering, leadership development programs, workshops, seminars, coaching, all that great stuff. And you can check out the rest of our podcasts there as well. So, Jane. Yeah. And if you go to our website and search psychological safety, um, you will find a little bit of information about uh, the work that I've been doing recently and a little bit more about my understanding of it. And uh, also, if you just want to read a bit more about it, just a reminder of the website uh, that we were talking about, where the source is. The book's called The Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson, and the website is fearlessorganization.com. Brilliant. Okay, well, this was a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to us, and we'll be chatting to you again next week. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget, as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that everyone can attend. You can sign up for these and our newsletter, The Wow Mail, on our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io.